first service. The first service, I guess they thought with that abrupt ending, she was going to pick up and do something else. And they kind of sat there and waited. So, you know, but no, no, that's all you get. You've got to come back again another time to get some more. But it is good to be with you this morning. It's good to be able to open up God's word again with you this Sunday. Let's pray together this morning before we get into the word. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity that we have just to come together and not only worship you, but Father, hear from you, be encouraged by you, be motivated by you. God, to be the people that you've created us to be and do the things that you created us to do. God, I pray that we'll have our ears open, not just physical ears to hear the sounds that are coming out of this sound system as we speak, but Father, ears of our hearts open to truly hear your voice, to hear you speaking to us today about what it is that you want in our lives. It's in your son's name we pray this morning. Amen. We're going to begin, Lord willing, a series looking at the life of David that I've entitled Pursuit. Pursuit. When we think about pursuit, we think about chasing after something. Not, not just a race, not just chasing after a goal or a finish line, but truly chasing something. We, we think about a hunt. We think about uh, law enforcement as they're pursuing a criminal who's on the loose. We, we think about this desperate seeking and this longing to find whatever this thing is. In other words, there's a persistence there. There's an endurance. There's some diligence that has to be a part of this pursuit. There's this intentionality that's there. We know what we're looking for. We know what we're striving for, and we're stopping at nothing to find it. We'll sacrifice, we'll pay whatever cost it is to obtain this thing. You see a reference to a passage that we're going to be looking at today in 1 Samuel chapter 13, where God is speaking through Samuel, and he's given a message to Samuel to give to Saul. As Saul has failed God, and he says that he has sought out a man after his own heart. And of course, he's talking about David. And we talk about this Seeking a man after God's own heart. What what does that really mean? What does that look like? Is this someone who does everything that God wants him to do all the time? Is this someone who only thinks the things that God thinks? What, What is that word? Some translations actually use the word loyalty here. And that's a good translation. That's a good word to use. Because if we think about this idea of pursuit... There's, there's some dedication to what you're doing. There's dedication to the pursuit. You don't just give up the pursuit. In, in a sense, you stay loyal to it. And as God is speaking to Samuel about who it is that he wants to put on the throne, he says he's looking for a man who is loyal to his own heart. In other words, someone who is pursuing the heart of God, the things of God, the passions of God, the things that God is excited and thrilled about, that's what this person is pursuing. And he's dedicated to it. He's diligent to keep pursuing those things. Whatever the obstacles are, whatever his shortcomings are, whatever things come up in his life, there's this endurance and this persistence to be after, to be loyal to, to be pursuing God's heart. And so that's what we're going to be looking at over the course of the next couple of weeks, Lord willing, at David's life and what it means, what we can find out about what it means to be a person who is loyal to God's heart so that we can pattern our lives that way. So that we can take an examination of our own hearts and our own minds and see how loyal are we to the heart of God. We get a great understanding of that in David's character But we get an even better understanding of that when we look at David's character contrasted to that of Saul's. Because remember, whenever Samuel gives this message, he's giving it to Saul, who is a man that we could argue that was not 
loyal to God's heart. Who was a man who was not after God's own heart. If he's going to replace Saul with someone who is, that tells us Saul was not. So what do we see by looking at the reign and the character of David and Saul? How do they compare? Do we, do we see attributes of David in our lives? Do we see attributes of Saul in our lives? And where is God wanting to work to make us people who are after his heart? Who are loyal to his passions, his desires, his plans? So let's begin by looking at the beginnings of each of these men's service, their reign as king in Israel. When we think of Saul, we often think of the bad guy. He's the anti-hero in this story. He is, he is David's nemesis, so to speak. Maybe even more so than Goliath, because while Goliath, we have one instance. Saul and David are in conflict for years. And yet, in the beginning, Saul was not what we think of. In fact, if we look at the beginning of both of these men's service as king, they have very similar beginnings. There's quite a lot that they do have in common. They both come from humble beginnings. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, which was the smallest, most insignificant of the 12 tribes. In fact, according to Saul's own account, he was not worthy to be king when Samuel gave him that information because who was he? Who was his family? Who was his tribe? While his father was an influential man within the tribe, the tribe itself held no influence throughout the nation. There was, there was no one seeking Benjamin's input. There was no one seeking Benjamin's assistance. Saul could not understand why anyone would want to make him king. And the same is true for David. David was from a little rural farming town. What good ever came out of Bethlehem? And not only that, but David was the youngest of all of his brothers. He was the one that when they wanted to get out of work and they wanted to slack off on things and they wanted to pass the buck, it, it fell to David. He was the low man on the totem pole in the family. They both come from humble beginnings. In fact, whenever Samuel encounters both of them, they're both working with the family livestock. If you remember, whenever Saul and Samuel have their first encounter, Saul has been dispatched by his father along with one of the servants to go and find the donkeys that have taken off and gotten loose. They're wandering somewhere throughout the countryside. They've been gone for a number of days, and Saul's father is worried about the investment he has in the donkeys. So he sends Saul and one of the servants to go and find them. And while they're out there, they've been gone three days, Saul realizes that father's going to start to worry about us instead of the donkeys. We need to turn around and go back home. And his servant says, well, there's a man who lives here in the city who's a prophet of God. And if we go and inquire of him about the donkeys, he'll be able to tell us what has happened. Little did Saul know that God was using this incident to bring him to Samuel because he had already told Samuel, tomorrow at this time I'm going to bring you a young man and this is who I've chosen as king of Israel. When Samuel first encounters David, if you remember that story, Samuel has been told by God to go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem and one of his sons will be the king that he's picked. And so Samuel goes and he's prepared the sacrifice, they're preparing the meal, he says, but we're not going to eat until we've taken care of business first. So he has Jesse bring his sons in one at a time before him. And if you remember, God shoots down everyone. 
that's not him, that's not him, that's not him, that's not him. And whenever he's gone through all of the sons, Samuel says, surely there has to be one more. God is never wrong. He says, one of your sons is going to be king. He's rejected all of them so far. And Jesse says, well, there is the youngest, but he's where? Out with the sheep. Both of these guys come from humble beginnings. Both of these guys were farmer's sons. There there was nothing assuming about any of them. But they were both chosen by God. They were both chosen by God. Saul was picked to be the first king of Israel. Israel wanted someone like all the nations around them who would be that figurehead, who would be that symbol of power, who would be that embodiment of everything that the nation stood for and everything great about the nation. And though Israel was sinning against God by choosing to have a king instead of following God as their king, God relented and said, I will give them what they're asking for. They need to understand what a king is going to do and what it's going to be like to be under a king. But I will give them a king. And he picks someone that they're looking for. He picks someone who looks like the king. He gives them everything that they could have imagined. And he picks someone that he can work with. And whenever it didn't work out with Saul, God says it repented him that he had chosen Saul as king. So he takes the kingdom away from Saul and he says gives it to his neighbor who's better than him. And he handpicks David. He handpicks a man who is loyal to his heart. He might not look like everything the Israelites expected. He might not be everything that you would expect a king to be on the outside. But he was a man who was after his heart and it was his choice as king. And in choosing both of them as king, they were both anointed with the Spirit. Now understand, this is different than what we think of when we think about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives as believers. That at that moment when we're saved, this Holy Spirit comes in and lives within us and dwells within us. This is different. This is a special anointing. This is God sending His Spirit upon this person that He is working through and He is working with. This is a special way of God dealing with someone, of guiding them and leading them and empowering them and blessing what it is that they do. So they were both anointed with the Spirit of God. There was something else they had in common. They were both mentored by Samuel. Samuel was the prophet who was God's mouthpiece as they were following the Lord after the period of the judges and before we get into the period of the kings. It's Samuel's leadership that was rejected by the people whenever they wanted a king. And while Samuel tells them they're sinning against the Lord for wanting this thing, he says, the Lord is going to give you what you want. Samuel could have very easily washed his hands of it and said, okay, but I am done. You're on your own. Here's your king. Good luck. But instead, Samuel stayed around. Samuel was led by the Lord to be the mouthpiece and to be a word in the ear of each of these men as God was molding them and shaping them, working with them to be the king that Israel needed, to be the leader that God needed them to be. Both of these men were mentored by Samuel. Yet the outcome was very different. One of the first things that we notice that's different about these young men is something we've alluded to, the fact that Saul looks like a warrior, but David looks like a youth. Saul looks the part. He's a head taller than everyone else. He looks like that man you would expect to be in the crown, out there in front of everyone, leading his army into battle. David does not look the part. He's a handsome young man. He's an athletic young man, but he does not look like a warrior. He does not look the part of a king. There's there's nothing regal about him. 
There's nothing that makes him stand out above everyone else. But that's not the only difference. As we begin to look at the reign and the life of each of these men, we'll notice several things are different. First of all, David consulted the Lord. Saul did not. David waited on the Lord. Saul did not. David obeyed the Lord to an extreme even. Saul did not. David trusted God's supply. Saul did not. David gave God credit and glory whenever things happened militarily and politically in his life. Saul did not. David exalted God. Saul exalted, as we'll see here in a few moments, himself. David had a personal relationship with God. Saul did not. So now wait a minute. You said they were both anointed by the Spirit. But remember that anointing is not the same thing as that indwelling of the Spirit in a believer. Saul had God working on him and through him as his instrument to lead. God was giving Saul military victory. God was blessing Saul's endeavors on behalf of the kingdom, on behalf of his people. But that doesn't mean Saul had a personal relationship. God can use someone and use someone's life and use someone's influence even if they're not followers of his. We see this happen time and time again in Scripture. Look at the way God would raise up even pagan nations around Israel to use to execute his judgment on Israel. Just because Saul was anointed by God to be that leader and blessed with military success and might, that does not mean that Saul had a personal relationship. Just because we can see God working around and in and through our lives and blessing some of our endeavors does not mean we have a personal relationship. Just because our bank account is doing well and all the bills are paid and our kids are succeeding in school, that doesn't mean we have a personal relationship. It means God is extending to you blessings that you do not deserve. He hasn't abandoned you. He is calling you to himself. He's displaying his power to you in your life. But that doesn't mean you have a personal relationship. David repented of his sin. Saul did not. David listened to correction. Saul did not. David did not seek man's approval, and yet that's exactly what Saul was after. So let's begin looking at quite a bit of Scripture this morning as as we look at one aspect. One aspect of David's heart after God, of his loyalty to God. And contrast that to the same aspect in Saul's life today. We're, We're going to be looking today at this idea of obedience. Obedience. Begin with me in Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Notice that Saul was 30 years old when he became king. He reigned for 42 years over Israel. Remember that number. He reigned for how long? 42 years. Now Saul had an available army of 300,000. But he chose for himself 3,000 men. 2,000 stayed with him in one city, and about 15 miles away, he had another 1,000 positioned at a camp with Jonathan. And he's getting ready to start a war with the Philistines. And in verse 5, it says, The Philistines notice that he's amassing this army across the river, so the Philistines gather for a fight. They have 3,000 chariots. 
Saul has 3,000 soldiers. 6,000 horsemen and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves, thickets among the rocks, and in holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was still at Gilgal, and his troops were gripped with fear. He waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. Then he offered the burnt offering. Just as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. So Saul went out to greet him, and Saul asked, what have you done? Now understand what's going on here. Samuel has told Saul that when he goes out to prepare for war and to line up and to make camp with these soldiers, that he's to wait seven days. And on the seventh day, he's going to arrive and offer this burnt offering before the Lord to seek not only his counsel and his wisdom, but his blessing and his protection as they go to this fight. So Saul does exactly what Samuel says. He goes out, the troops are split, they're there and they're waiting. But as the Philistine army comes in and begins to amass, these soldiers realize they're in trouble. They are far outnumbered, not only by the number of soldiers, but the number of weapons. At this time, the Philistines would not allow a blacksmith in Israel because they didn't want the Israelites to have the same type of war technology that they had. Israel is going out with wood and stone weapons. Spears, bows and arrows, clubs, flint knives. There are no metal swords. There are no metal spears. In fact, it says that only Jonathan and Saul had proper weapons. So they're outnumbered and they're outtecked. And they realize that they're in trouble, so they begin to run and hide. And as Saul's army is dwindling down from the 2,000 that he had with him to the 600 that he now has on day 7, he realizes that the Philistines are not going to wait forever, and they're going to attack. And as they realize that the Israelite army is getting smaller, that's only more of an incentive for them to go ahead and launch the offensive. So Saul says, I've got to do something. I've got to do something to keep the troops that I have. I've got to do something to rally the morale. I've got to do something to get God's blessing in here. I can't go to war. You know, we can't eat without saying God is great, God is good, right? I mean, it's the same sort of thing. I can't go to war unless I've made the sacrifice. Not that I believe that it's going to do anything. Not that it has any meaning to me, but it's what we do. And before we go to war, we've got to have the sacrifice. So I'm going to do it. And when Samuel arrives, he says, what have you done? Now look at the following conversation and Saul's justification here. Saul answers, when I saw the troops were deserting me and you didn't come within the appointed days. What day did Samuel say he was going to get there? The seventh. This is day number seven. Samuel hadn't even had a cup of coffee yet and Saul's already up offering the sacrifice. See, we do that. We do that. God, I waited on you, I waited on you, I waited on you. You didn't show up, you didn't come in time. I had to do something, I couldn't just wait around forever. It says, when you didn't come at the appointed time, and the Philistines were gathering in Michmash, I thought, the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal, and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. What did he want? The Lord's favor, his blessing. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you've been foolish. 
You have not kept the command which the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, meaning Saul's reign and his perpetual descendants. But now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man loyal to him, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. But it doesn't stop there. Turn over to chapter 15. God has given Saul a command to fulfill a centuries-old prophecy against one of Israel's oldest enemies. God has said their sin, their iniquity has now come to its full. He's ready to execute the judgment that he had prophesied, and he is going to use Saul and his army to do it. But he says this, In executing this judgment, you're to go in and completely wipe out this people. That was the prophecy. Because of their sin against Israel, because of their sin against me, as far back as when Moses and the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt and in the wilderness, I promised and made a decree that their time was coming and they would be wiped from the face of the earth. And Saul, I'm going to use you to do it. Don't spare man, woman, child, any living thing. They're all to be destroyed. So what does Saul do? Begin with me in verse 5. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set up an ambush in the wadi. He warned the Kenites, since you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, go on and leave. See, he got it. He knew the history. He knew exactly what God had decreed. He knew why they were to be wiped out. Get away from the Amalekites or I'll sweep you away with them. He knew what the command was. He knew what his instructions were and what he was supposed to do. But in verse 7, Then Saul struck down the Amalekites, from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is next to Egypt. He captured Agag, king of Amalek, alive, but he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with the sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, cattle, and fatlings, as well as the young rams and the best of everything. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. So they begin to modify instructions based on what they think is best and what sounds logical and reasonable and practical. So what happens? Verse 12, early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel. Saul went to Carmel where he set up a monument for himself. Notice what Saul has just done. Instead of completely obeying the instruction of the Lord and being able to glory in the success and the complete 100% completion of what God had prophesied hundreds of years earlier, Saul goes in and does his own thing, not obeying God, and erects a monument to his disobedience to honor himself. Then he turned around and went down to Gilgal. When Samuel came to him, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel replied, then what is the sound of sheep and cattle I hear? Saul answered, the troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we destroyed. Just stop, says Samuel. Just stop. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Saul's ready to hear. Go on, tell me. He's ready for the allocates. He's ready to hear the pat on the back and how well he's done. And Samuel continues, although you once considered yourself unimportant, have you not become the leader of the tribes of Israel? 
The Lord appointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, Go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder and the best of what was set apart for destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And this is where Samuel begins to ask him, what does God really desire? Is God interested in your sacrifices? Or is God interested in your obedience? And notice what he says. Rebellion is like the sin... Maybe your Bible says divination. Read witchcraft. We know later in Saul's life, what did he finally resort to? You see, here was just a little step of rebellion. Here was just a little step of disobedience. Here was just a little tweak on the instructions. God says that bit of rebellion is the same as witchcraft. And where did God finally find Saul at the end of his life? Consorting with witches. Saul answers Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's command in your words because I was afraid of the people. I obeyed them. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin. And notice what he says. Return with me so I can worship your Lord. Samuel replies to Saul, I will not return with you because you rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. When Samuel turned to go, Saul grabs him by the hem of the robe and it tore Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Furthermore, the eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind. He is not a man who changes his mind. So Saul hears, that's it. It's been pronounced. Nothing is going to change. And look how he responds in 30. I have sinned. Please honor me now before the elders and all my people before Israel. Come back with me so I can bow down and worship the Lord your God. Let's contrast that with David and David's obedience. Turn over with me to chapter 24. David has been on the run from Saul. He's been hiding out in the wilderness. He's the anointed, appointed king of Israel. And yet he does not have a throne. He does not have a penny to his name. He does not have the command of the army of Israel. He does not even get to go home to his wife. He's not yet gotten to start a family. He's been living in the thickets and the caves and anywhere that will have him. He's gone to his enemies seeking refuge at times. He's found himself fighting in their armies just to provide for him and the 400 reject vagabonds that have attached themselves to him as his strong men. And as he's run from Saul, and almost been caught. Saul gets word that the Philistines are attacking one of the outlying areas of Israel. And so he turns to go and defend that area, that city. But once he's put down that attack, Saul turns his attention back to David. And in chapter 24, we read that Saul returns from pursuing the Philistines, and he's told that David's in the wilderness near En So Saul takes 3,000 of his choice soldiers and goes after David. Verse 3, when Saul comes to the sheep pens along the road in that area there in En Gedi, a cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the back of the cave. So they said to David, look, this is the day the Lord told you about. 
And they, they quote the Lord here. Only I challenge you to find where this is said anywhere else in Scripture. I will hand your enemy over to you so you can do to him whatever you desire. God has promised to deliver David from his enemies. God has promised to defeat David's enemies. God has promised to give David victory over his enemies. But see if you can find, if you do, let me know this week, anywhere where God has told David he's going to hand him to his enemies to do whatever David desires to do to him. Then David got up and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And he says to his men, I swear before the Lord, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men and they did not, he did not let them rise up against Saul. If you look over in chapter 26, we see a similar incident when in the middle of the night, Saul and his soldiers are camping out in pursuit of David, chasing him through the wilderness again, and yet they've fallen asleep, and God is preventing them from waking up as David and his men are walking through the camp. They come up on Saul, and there is Saul sleeping on the ground with a spear that he's launched at David several times trying to kill him and pin him to the wall. That spear is stuck in the ground right next to Saul's head along with his water jug. And the captain of David's guard, his best soldier, the general of his mighty men, says, please, David, just just let me take the spear and just pin him to the ground right here. I won't even have to strike twice. I promise you, I will do it in one shot. Just let me have the chance. I know you said you won't raise your hand against him. Just let me. I'll do it right here, right now. And notice what David says in verse 10. As the Lord lives... The Lord will certainly strike him down. Either his day will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. However, because of the Lord, I will never lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Instead, take the spear and the water jug by his head and let's go. Look at the differences between these two men in terms of obedience. See, David understood what it was to obey, and he obeys... God's timing. He's obedient to God's timing. David knows that the throne is his. David knows that the Spirit of the Lord is already on him. God has already anointed him king over Israel. And yet Saul still sits on the throne. By the way, I told you to remember a number earlier. Let's see how well you did. How long was Saul king of Israel? 42 years. Very good. 42 years. David was anointed by Samuel early in Saul's reign. That means for at least 35 years, Saul serves out his time as king while David has been anointed king of Israel. Is there anyone in this room who would not see this as an opportunity to take what was rightfully yours? I mean, God told you that you were going to be king. This is now the second opportunity. You didn't take the first one. Now God's given you a second chance to take what is rightfully yours. And yet David understands what's at stake. David understands that God put Saul on the throne and only God should be the one to take him off the throne. He is willing to wait 
on God's timing, no matter how long that is. He's completely obedient to God's timeline. And yet there's Saul, who was told to wait seven days to make the sacrifice. And as soon as he woke up on the seventh day, he had waited as long as he could wait. We do that, don't we? We're 90% obedient to God. You know what? I've been waiting and praying about it for two weeks, but this bill's due tomorrow. I've got to do something. So we take matters into our own hands, don't we? We've been praying about this and praying about this and praying about this and trying to make this decision medically, and we've been waiting on the Lord's guidance, and it just seems like we're not getting clear answers yet, and I just can't wait anymore. You know what? I'm just going to go ahead and do, let's just go ahead and schedule this. We, we don't wait on the Lord's timing. We, we put up with the waiting so long. But then we've got to do something about ourselves. You know what? Maybe God's just waiting on me to make the first move. And that's, that's what it is. I need to make the first move and then God will come in and take care of the rest. But David understood that obedience to God is not just obedience to the plan. It's not just obedience to the procedure. It's obedience to God's timing as well. And when God moves and God is ready and God has prepared us and God has done the work that he needs to do in us before the next step, then he provides. Then he moves. Then he takes the next step. We have to be obedient to God's timing. But we don't just have to be obedient to the timing. We have to be obedient to the plan. The way God is choosing to do things the procedure that he decides to use. It might not be the one that we would pick. It might not be what we think is best. But we have to be obedient to the plan. You see, David did not listen to the wisdom and the logic and the rationale of his men. I mean, it sounded logical. David, you remember the time back there in the cave? We were sitting in there. We had no idea. We hadn't planned it. And God brought Saul in there, I mean, right up to you. Remember, remember that time and we told you that this was your opportunity to go ahead and take what God had promised you? This was your opportunity to make good on what God had promised? And do you think David couldn't have done it? I mean, think about it. How sharp was that knife that he could slice off the corner of his cloak and him not even know? I challenge you this evening or this afternoon when you go home. Now, wait till your spouse has changed clothes, you know, and they're just in the sweats and the T-shirt or whatever. But grab hold of the back of their T-shirt and take a pair of scissors and just cut a piece off of there and see if they don't notice. Could, could you tug it taunt enough that your scissors could go through it without them knowing? Think about how sharp this knife is that David's able to grab hold of this cloak and cut off a piece and Saul didn't even realize it. All he had to do was move that knife up just a couple feet. It's done. But David says, no, I'm not going to listen to the wisdom of men. And then months later, whenever his military commander said, David, you don't even have to do it. God, you're right. God didn't say he was going to deliver your enemy into your hand for you to do as you desired. It just said he would, he would take care of your enemy for you. I'm that guy. You don't have to lift a finger. Just look the other way. I will stick him to the ground right here. 
But David did not listen to the wisdom of men. But then there's Saul, right? Saul looks around at the situation he's in. He he looks at the army across the way. He sees his men leaving him and deserting him. I mean, he knows that he needs to bring the Lord in on the battle. He knows that Israel is going to need the Lord's blessing. He knows that he's outnumbered. He knows that the sacrifice is supposed to be offered. So really, what's stopping him from... I mean, there's not a set, defined you know, priesthood right there available. So, so why couldn't Saul go ahead and make this offering? I mean, it's only rational. It's only reasonable, right? I don't know exactly how God is going to provide for that bill this month. And I've waited and I've waited and I've waited and I've waited. But you know what? Nobody would notice if I dipped into the petty cash fund right now and then just repaid it again next week whenever I get my paycheck. That sounds reasonable. We, we, nothing's, nobody's going to miss it. We don't get into that petty cash fund any time at all at work anyway, except when somebody's buying stamps and we just bought some last week. Nobody will even know it's gone. See, we, we logic and reason and try to figure out how we're going to assist God in getting to where we think we need to go. It makes perfect sense in our mind. We bounce it off a few friends, and, and it's perfectly reasonable to all of them too. But it's not what God told us to do. And it's not the way he told us to handle things. We aren't just obedient to God in his timing, but we've got to be obedient to God according to his plan. Even when his plan seems strange and illogical. Even when his plan makes absolutely zero sense to us. I mean, what did God say about his plan? He says his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His way is higher than our ways. He says what he has in store for us, our mind can't even begin to imagine. Of course his plan doesn't always make sense to us. But it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. We just have to be obedient to the plan in his timing. We also have to be obedient to God's leading. See, so we see this big difference between Saul and David and how they approached God and what place he had in their lives and their rule. David, as we get into Samuel chapter 23 gets a report that the Philistines were fighting against one of the cities in Israel. And he was close by. He knew he could get there. He knew he could do something about it. He knew he could help. But he also knew that if he brought his men out of hiding to go and help this city, that that was going to give away his position. And they would certainly tell Saul where he was because there was a bounty out for David's head. So he's torn. He is the appointed king of Israel. These are his people. These are God's people. And he knows that he has the power to go and deliver them and do something about it. And yet at the same time, he knows if he does, it seems to defy logic because Saul's going to know exactly where he is. He's going to expose himself and his men. So what does he do? He goes and inquires of the Lord. God, what should I do? Should I launch the attack? If I launch the attack, are the men of the city going to turn me over to Saul? Are they going to wrap me out in my position? See, he's inquiring of the Lord. He's seeking the Lord's leading in these situations. 
Yet we look back at Saul. Saul wanted Samuel to come back with him so he could bow down and worship the Lord. Why? Because he was seeking, the phrase he uses is God's favor. You see, Saul didn't want God's wisdom. He wanted God's blessing. There's a huge difference. And we approach God in one of those same two ways. We either look at the situation we're in, we look at the decision we're trying to make, we look at the direction our life is taking, and we seek God and we say, God, where do you want me to go? How do you want me to handle this? What is the wise thing to do here? What is going to bring you the most glory in my life? How would you proceed? What are your thoughts on this situation? Or we go to God and we say, God, this is really what I want. This is my vision. This is my dream. These are my goals. This is where I need to be. These are the things that I need. This is how I'm going to do it. This is how I'm going to get there. Please mow down any obstacles, flatten out any molehills, fill up any valleys, take away the thorns, remove any traps, get the obstacles out of the way, quell the difficult people, hush all of the criticism, don't let me offend anybody, don't let me have any trouble doing this, keep me safe. Bless what I'm doing. Bless my plan. Help me succeed in what I think is most important and the way I think it should go. Because we're worried about what we have. We're worried about what other people are going to think of us. We're seeking to please people and stay in people's good standing and look good in their eyes. We want what we want, and we want everybody else to be happy with giving it to us. But instead, God says we have to be obedient to his leading. He doesn't exist for us to seek his blessing. He wants us to seek his wisdom and be obedient to his leading according to his plan and his time. But there's a fourth way that David was obedient. He showed obedience to God's correction. God's correction. If we flip over to chapter 25, David has a run-in with a rather interesting character by the name of Nabal. David and his men, while they're on the run from Saul, out in this one particular part of the wilderness, hiding out of the thickets and the mountains around the fields, And this guy Nabal would have shepherds take his flocks out there to graze. And while they were out there, David and his men offered them protection. They made sure that none of the sheep went missing. They made sure that none of the mountain lions or the wolves or the bears would come in and disturb the shepherds or the flock. And they never asked for anything while they were out there. They never took a lamb out of the flock for a good meal when they were hungry at night. They never went down and drew out of the shepherds' wells. They left them alone and simply protected them and watched out for them while they were there. Well, the time of the year rolls around to shear the sheep. And you didn't simply just shear the sheep, especially if you were a man of wealth and a man who had servants and men who were out there doing this for you. No, you provided a big feast. It was a joyous time. It was a huge party. It was like harvest time for a farmer. And so David knew that Nabal was throwing this big feast and he knew where he would be shearing his sheep. So he sends some of his men to Nabal. They introduced themselves and they said, 
the whole time your men were out in the fields, and you can ask them. We watched out for them and made sure that they were safe, made sure that nothing went missing from the flock. And we never asked for anything in return. But we know it's the time of the shearing, and we know you've prepared this big feast, and we know that you prepared more than these guys could ever eat. You, you lavish it on because that's what you do in your show of hospitality and your wealth. Could you spare some food? Could you spare some provisions for our men? And Nabal doesn't just refuse them. Now understand, he's not under obligation to give them anything. But he doesn't just refuse them. He's rather rude and unhospitable. Mocks David and who is David and sends them on their way. So they go back and give the report to David and this flies all over him. He's a man after God's own heart, but he's still a man. And he feels insulted. He feels used. He feels taken advantage of. So he tells his men to strap up. And they're going to roll out. And they're going to go to Nabal's house. And they're going to make sure that there is not a single heir left in this man's home to carry out his name in his unhospitable ways. But word of this gets back to Nabal's wife. who's a virtuous, wise woman. So she gathers up provisions and supplies and she herself sets out and meets David on the way and bows down before him and offers him provisions for his men and apologizes for her husband's behavior. But what's interesting is God speaks through her to David. And she reminds David that if she does this, that this blood will be on his hands. Her husband is a jerk, yes. But he had done nothing to David to deserve being executed. So if David goes through with this, David will be in sin. And her husband's blood and her household's blood will be on David's hands. So David listens. And David thanks her for speaking up and stopping him from doing this thing that he was about to do. From speaking reason to him and getting him back in his right mind. And David turns around with the provisions that she's offered. He takes his men and he goes back to their camp. A few days later, word gets back to David that Nabal has died. God avenged David. David was willing to listen to correction, even if it was from someone that he wouldn't have normally listened to. This wasn't Samuel. This wasn't Nathan. This wasn't any of the other prophets of God. This wasn't an angelic visit that he received on the way. There wasn't a blinding light on his way to Nabal's house. This was a housewife who very humbly came before David and begged him to think about what he was about to do. Not for her husband's sake. You read in here what she says about her own husband. You get the idea that he would have been doing her a favor to get rid of him anyway. She doesn't do it for her husband's sake. She does it for the Lord's sake. Knowing that David is God's anointed. And David does not need this sin on his hands. He needs to protect that fellowship and that relationship that he has with God. He needs to listen to God's wisdom and be led by God in this instance. A woman. 
Why would the appointed, anointed king of Israel listen to a housewife about what he wanted to do after he's been insulted and humiliated? Because David understands how to listen when God speaks and accept God's correction, regardless of where it's coming from. He knows how to weigh the truth of what's being said against Scripture, against what the Lord has said, what the Lord has instructed him, and see, is this really from God? With Saul, we see just the opposite. Chapter 19 and chapter 20, we see that Saul has desired to kill David. He's made plans to kill David. He sent men to lay in wait at David's house. His wife had to sneak him out through a window. Jonathan has confronted Saul and said, Why would you do this thing? Why do you desire to kill David? David has done nothing to you. Because of David, God has blessed you and your kingship. You've experienced great military victory and success. You hold a great name and reputation among the people because of what God has done through David in your life life, why would you do this? And yet Saul refuses to listen, even to his own son. If you read in chapter 20, it says he even picks up the same spear that he's tried to pin David to the wall with several times and hurls it at Jonathan because Jonathan dares to speak up for David. Saul refuses to listen to the Lord's correction. In fact, in his pursuit of David, Saul finds out that a village of priests has assisted David, and he goes to the village and has every one of the priests and their family members slaughtered. Not only does he defy the Lord's correction, he's willing to go completely against the Lord's direction. But David realizes to be obedient, to be this person who's loyal to God's heart. We have to be obedient to his correction. It's not always fun. We don't always like to hear it. We don't like to have our toes stepped on. We don't like for God to point those things out in our lives that don't match his image. We don't like for him to play on our conscience. That's when we've said something. We know the minute it comes out of our mouth, we shouldn't have said it. We, we don't like that feeling of God saying, you need to make things right. You need to tell them that you're sorry. You need to go back to them. You need to correct this. You need to fix this. You need to make amends. You need to, we don't like that. We don't want to listen to God when he says, quit being so prideful. Quit being so full of yourself. Would you just humble yourself and do what I'm asking you? We don't want to hear that. But if we're not willing to obey God's correction, we're not a person who's loyal to the heart of God. So where does that desire come from? Where did it come from in David? Well, obedience comes from a personal relationship. A personal relationship. Saul did not have it. Saul did not have it. You look at the number of times in chapter 15 he's talking to Samuel that he talks about doing something for your God. Let's go back so we can bow down and worship your God. Pray to your God. Saul doesn't have a personal relationship. And because of that, he has no interest in obeying God's plan. He has no interest in being obedient in God's timing. He has no interest in being obedient to God's correction. Yet David, you look at Psalm 118, he says, You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt your name. Over and over again, we see David confessing this lordship in his life. And out of that, David's heart desired to obey God. 
no matter how long it took, no matter how illogical the plan, no matter how much course correction it took in his life, David was willing to obey out of this personal relationship. Look at one final verse, and we'll kind of close with this. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. It says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. The question is, is he your Savior and Lord today? Do you have that personal relationship? Have you gotten to the point where you realized you were separated from God because of your sin and you couldn't do a thing about it? That God did everything that needed to be done and all you have to do is accept it. And not just with some intellectual belief. Not just with some ritualistic religion where you try to get the favor and the blessing of God so your life will be better. But have you gotten to the point where you realized you cannot do it? There's nothing you can plan, nothing you can scheme, no effort that you can make to get yourself right in that relationship with God. To make your life what he designed it to be. And have you come to that point where you've said, God, I surrender. Not only am I accepting your forgiveness, not only do I desire your blessing and your favor, but God, I am making you the boss. You are Lord. Because when we reach that point, that's where that desire for obedience comes. Jesus says, if you love me, what? You'll obey my commands. Out of that great love and appreciation for the sacrifice he made for us, for his desire for a relationship with us, for his desire for us to experience the abundant life he created us for, out of appreciation for that, we obey. And that was David's great motivation. So let me ask today, what does is, what is your obedience look like? Where is God putting his finger this morning? Maybe we're obedient to God's timing, just not always his methods and his plan. Or maybe we've got the patience of Job and we can wait on God all day, but you know what, the way he's asking me to do this, I just really can't get behind. And we're not always obedient to the plan. Maybe... It's this idea of correction. God's dealing with us with something, and we just don't want to admit that about ourselves. We just don't want to admit that God's right. We don't want to see ourselves that way. We, we don't think we're this person. We don't think we do this thing, but man, God just keeps hammering it home. If I'm going to get it taken care of, I'm going to have to agree with him. That means letting down that pride. Maybe, maybe we just have a hard time doing that. Maybe we're struggling listening to God's leading in our life. Because we just don't ever slow down. We think we've got most things handled. We think we do well on our own through 90% of our life. What God's saying is if you really want to be a person who's loyal to my heart, a person who's after my heart, I need you to come to me for wisdom and leading and guidance in everything. Because daily, it's sacrificing my attitudes, my thoughts, my actions. What's God dealing with you with this morning? Maybe you need to come and take that first step of obedience. I'll be right down here. You come and talk to me about that. Maybe you just need to come and pray. Maybe you need to surrender one of these areas where God's calling you to be more obedient. I'm going to pray for us. 
You'll be dismissed. I'll be down front if you need to talk. God, we do thank you for this morning and a chance to